Father, we thank you for all that you've allowed us to do this morning, all the things you've taught us just through song. The opportunity to pray together, Father, the opportunity to worship through offerings. I thank you for those opportunities. And now we pray, Father, you'd be with us, that you would help us, guide us, direct us as we come to your word to be made wise. As we come to your word, Father, to know you more. And I pray that would be what would happen this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for many Christians around the world, uh, we are in what is known as the Lenten season, or Lent. Uh, For many years, uh, you had the uh, Christmas religious season where that was really focused on celebrating. Of course, we those traditions have been handed, handed down, and now we eat and we sing, and we kind of rejoice around the Christmas season. Well, the Lenten season is about really more about seriousness. Uh, of course, you probably are aware of the fact during the Lenten season, many people, many uh, Christians around the world will give something up. They'll give up a certain food or they'll give up a certain activity. And the idea being that instead of eating that food uh, or instead of doing that activity, uh, they're going to take the time to meditate on what God did or what Jesus did on the cross this uh, during this season. Now, historically, Baptists don't typically get involved in the Lenten season. I don't have clerical robes that are special for this time of year. Uh, And uh, I kind of think we lose something. Now, I'm not trying to suggest we need to get in all the pageantry of the Lenten season or that you need to be giving something up. But I do think it's important for us, leading into the Easter weekend or Easter Sunday, that we have spent sufficient time thinking about the things that all of that represents. Now, to do that, we're going to begin in the Gospel of John. John tells us later in the book why he wrote his book, much later than the first three. We can tell by dates that John may have written his Gospel 20, 30 years after the other three did. But he tells us the reason he wrote everything down the way he did and why he chose the things to talk about that he did was so that whoever read his book would believe. That's John's whole goal and everything he says is simply so that the reader would believe. Now one of the methods that John uses in his book is to talk about a uh, significant situation. And then follow that up with a speech or a teaching from Jesus. Now, in our case, in chapter 2, we have the wedding in Cana and him turning water into wine. Now, having done that, John then begins to move to having this conversation. Jesus has this conversation with this religious leader. Now, as you heard me read this morning, and perhaps you're very familiar with this text, we have a phrase that is very popular the phrase, to be born again. Now, in our culture, this probably wasn't the case 40, 50 years ago, but today, that phrase, to be born again, can have significant difference in meaning for many different people. For example, if you're having a conversation and you say to somebody, I've been born again, they might immediately picture you as somebody who belongs to a very emotional religion. 
They might picture you must go to church on Sunday morning and when we sing, you put your hands in the air. Maybe the lights are turned down low. Maybe the music's a little moody. Maybe you get a couple of tears in your eye. But, but they would think born again means emotional. You might talk to another person and they, you would say, I've been born again. And they might immediately assume that you've messed up. That somewhere in your life, you did something terrible. Maybe you were uh, a drug addict and you would steal from people. And you would say, they would say, okay, so you're born again. Now you have a religion that gives you the moral rules you need to function in society. So they would think of your religion or your faith as being very rules-oriented, very morally structured. Or you might say to somebody, I've been born again... And in many places, they're going to immediately think conservative, meaning they're going to think they know what party you belong to. They know what kind of activism you're involved in. They think of being born again almost entirely through the prism of politics. Again, now this was probably not the case 40, 50 years ago. We had a president who claimed to or used that title quite often, calling himself a born-again Christian But today, that phrase can have very different meanings depending upon who you're talking to. But one thing we need to be clear about is what does Jesus mean when he uses that phrase? What does Jesus mean when he says, you must be born again? I have three points for you this morning. Number one, what does Jesus mean by being born again? Well, he first of all explains everyone needs to be born again. The first thing he explains here is that everyone needs to be born again. So in the cover of darkness, the text says to us that this religious teacher named Nicodemus comes to Jesus. In verse 2, he says, Rabbi, clearly you are from God. Now that is a declaration that Nicodemus believes that Jesus is on some point a prophet. Now, for most of us, we might think of a prophet as an old man, long beard, always talking about the end of the world. In the Bible, a prophet is simply somebody who has information that people would not otherwise have if, they were, if it wasn't shared. So God might tell a prophet what's going to happen in the future, like he does Daniel. He told Daniel what was going to happen in the rise and fall of the Greek Empire. He told him hundreds of years before it happened. He couldn't have had that information unless God told him. And we wouldn't, or the original readers of Daniel would not have had that information had he not shared it. So for Nicodemus to come to Jesus and essentially declare, I believe you're a prophet. Nicodemus is saying, I believe you have information that I would otherwise not have. So I've come to hear what you have to say. The next thing in the text, though, is that Jesus says to Nicodemus, I say to you, a person cannot enter the kingdom unless they are born again. But we have no record of Nicodemus asking that question. He probably did, or the high likelihood that he did, because for a man of Nicodemus' stature, his place in the community... All of his education would have been pointing to that question. How does one get into the kingdom of God? That had tons of implication for a Jew. The kingdom of God was going to be the time when the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, would finally get out from underneath oppression. 
the justice would finally come for all the things the nations had done to the Jews. It meant a time of paradise and perfection and peace for all of eternity. And so Nicodemus has probably spent his entire adult life trying to figure out what rules he has to keep in order to qualify. When the day comes that God decides who gets in and who's left out, what do we need to know to know that we're going to be told, enter into my kingdom? That would have been the obsession of his mind. And as a religious teacher, he would want to know what he had to tell others. And this is the summary of all of this guy's hopes and dreams. What does it take to get into the kingdom? And Jesus says to him, nobody gets in unless they're born again. And of course, the Bible does explain that this is, in fact, the single most important question in all of life. The whole story of the Bible points to a day when we will live in resurrected bodies in the glorious garden kingdom of God. Living in paradise and peace and absolute perfection. So the question is, how do I get there? Now Jesus' response, you must be born again, would have been a challenge to everything Nicodemus would have thought. Because Jesus doesn't say to him, Nicodemus... Help a few more widows. He doesn't say to him, put more money in the offering. He doesn't say you need more moral structure. He doesn't say get involved in more activism. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. This is an incredibly religious man. This is a moral man. This is a righteous man in the sense of he has tried to do all the right things. And Jesus has just told him, none of it matters. Nobody sees the kingdom unless they're born again. And what does that mean for us? First of all, it means that no matter how put together your life is, you must be born again. It doesn't matter that you are an awesome person, that you must be the greatest guy or the greatest girl, or you're in the right relationship, have the right job, or give enough money. Even if you are an incredibly awesome person, you haven't created a new category. You, you don't get a different set of rules. Jesus says everybody must be born again. But it also means that no matter how badly you've messed up, the standard remains the same. You haven't created a new category. You haven't set some different rules for you. Jesus says this is the standard. The only way to get into the kingdom is that you must be born again. Everyone must be born again. Number two. The second thing that Jesus means by being born again is this. Is that being born again is supernatural. Outside of natural cycles. So in verse 4, Nicodemus responds, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he go back into his mother's womb, be born again that way? Now those questions reveal something. Nicodemus understands at least one thing that Jesus is saying. He understands that Jesus is saying in order to get into the kingdom, there must be an entire renovation of the person. It means that we, we can't just pick and choose. One must... Be completely changed. 
The problem is that Nicodemus doesn't see how that's even possible without completely starting over. So Jesus explains. A person must be born of both water and spirit. Jesus is using a picture. I mean, of course, he's talking to a religious teacher. He uses a picture right out of Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, water is compared to being in the desert. If you're in the desert, what's the thing you need? Water. Water becomes the equivalent of life. That's what NASA says. When it goes and looks for life in outer space, we need to find water. Because where we're going to find water, we're going to find what? Life. And according to Ezekiel 36, water is life. And so what Jesus is saying is that this total renovation, this new life that's being born again, is something that is provided by the Spirit. It is not something that is natural. He explains further. He says, look, flesh is flesh. Flesh dies. It gets old. But Spirit, that's eternal. Nicodemus would have understood this. It would have meant that being born again is not something a person can do for themselves. This would have been devastating. Again, this is a man who has tried to keep all the rules. And you want to understand what I mean by that? He has tried to wear the right clothes. He has avoided certain foods. He has eaten certain foods. He's gone at certain times to temple. He has woken up at certain times of day. He has avoided certain types of people. He has done everything he could possibly do. And Jesus is saying, look, there's nothing for you to do. Because being born again is supernatural. Nicodemus would have also understood in his studies of the Old Testament that nobody in all of Scripture ever gives themselves life. And nobody ever gives themselves the Spirit. And then Jesus moves on and really blows Nicodemus' mind by saying, look, the wind, the Spirit is like the wind. It goes where it wants. John has already explained this in chapter 1, meaning that, that salvation is not something you can trace. For example, you can't assume that you have life in spirit because you live in Nebraska. You can't assume that you have life in spirit because you are German, or because your last name is Smith, or because you're African, or because you have long hair, or because you, you're, you're a woman. None of these things can be traced. He's saying the spirit is like the wind. It is allowed to give birth to whoever it wants to give birth to. There's no qualifier in that sense. And this is why the illustration is perfect. Let me ask you a question this morning. You paying attention? What part did you play in being born? Who did all the work? For those of you who are moms, you should be looking at your children and going, mm-hmm. Who did all the work? And they should turn to you and say, you did, Mom. So let me ask the question again. What part did you play in being born? And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that life from the Spirit, the Spirit is free to choose whoever it wants to choose. And that means that salvation is something that God does, that it's a miracle, that it's a, a gift. Now, two things to be clear about here. First of all, the Bible teaches that the the, the new birth, being born again, will produce radical change. There is no might produce. Let me explain it this way. There's a statistic out there that says 
that those who claim to be born again have the same divorce rate of those who don't claim to be born again. And people look at a statistic like that and they go, look, being born again doesn't matter. But the Bible would actually turn to a statistic like that and say, if the people who claim to be born again have the same divorce rate as those who don't claim to be born again, then the people who are claiming to be born again are not. Because being born again does produce radical change. Now, we're not talking about perfectionism. In fact, 1 John tells us what we should be looking for. If you've been born again, what should you be keeping an eye out on? And the very first thing he lists in 1 John is this. A person who is truly born again knows that they sin. John says it this way. He says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. The second thing he lists is a complete reordering of what you love. I've been in the ministry long enough to see this happen. I have stood and sat with people who have been in church their entire life, who have been to Sunday school and have studied the word and have done everything they believe that causes them to be a Christian. And suddenly, suddenly their eyes are open. They're truly born again. And the very thing that seemed tedious to them, studying the scriptures, memorizing verses, became things that they loved. The other thing that John says is, is we should notice how we identify other believers. Suddenly every Christian becomes a brother. Every Christian becomes a sister regardless of social circumstances or economic situations or race or personal struggles. And we learn that we don't even identify ourselves that way. All we see is that we are children of God. The other thing we have to be perfectly clear about is this, is that means we can never underestimate the power of the new birth. And it means that we can never hide or replace or skirt around the gospel. For the the Bible will later clarify that the Spirit gives life upon the hearing of the gospel. And it means that nobody's beyond the new birth. There are no hopeless cases. And so we speak the gospel in hopes that the Spirit will give life. And so we, we speak the gospel and we preach the gospel in Sunday school and all of our ministries. And we say it again and again and again. Because this is the way the Spirit gives life, by the hearing of the gospel. So may we be a people who never shut up about it. Number three. What does Jesus mean by being born again? Well, being born again requires believing Jesus. Being born again requires believing Jesus. In verse 9, Jesus addresses the central problem, the point of everything that John is writing down The problem of belief. Nicodemus responds to all of this by asking the question, how can this be so? He's put it all together. He says, look, you've now said to me, the probably the most religious man here, that I need it. And you've told me that I can't do anything. I can't do it. I can't give birth to myself. And Jesus points out to Nicodemus, Interesting, he says to him, that you're the teacher of Israel. That's an actual title there in the original language. He is saying to Nicodemus, you're the pastor of Jerusalem. You're the guy everybody looks to for all of the religious answers, and you don't believe. 
You're the most educated guy in the room, Nicodemus, and you don't get it. And he even points out to Nicodemus, if, if, if I had given you earthly knowledge, you would not have believed. If I had given you heavenly knowledge, you certainly won't believe. He's saying to Nicodemus, you know what? If I had told you getting into the kingdom was about hopping on one foot. Or if I had told you that getting into the kingdom was about helping more of the poor. You would have even struggled with that. He said, but but what I'm bringing to you is the wisdom of heaven. And so to explain, Jesus takes Nicodemus to a story in Numbers. In the book of Numbers, there's a story about a rebellious people who received the judgment of God in the form of poisonous snakes. It's become tradition in our five years here. My kids don't think it's spring until we find a dead snake in the road. Because we know they're out and about. But in this story, God, these people rebel against God. God judges them by sending the poisonous snakes. People begin to get bit. They begin to die. And so people start to cry out saying, God, save us from these deadly snakes. And God responds. He says to Moses, I want you to take some bronze. I want you to make an image of a snake out of it. I want you to put it on a really high pole and put it high enough so that anybody who's ever bitten can look at it and live. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you remember that story? Well, just like it, the Son of Man must be lifted up so people can believe on him and look and live. You see, by the time you get to verse 16, which is probably the most famous verse in this text, the whole thing is really pregnant. I don't mean to make a pun. Everyone needs to be, so he's he's explained, everybody needs to be born again, but nobody can do it for themselves. So when you get to verse 16, he says, for God loved the world. So that word so there, for God so loved the world, that word so means in a way. So literally reading, verse 16 would say, for God loved the world in this way. He sent his son by implication to be lifted high like the bronze serpent so that anyone who believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. God loved us. So he did what we could not do for ourselves. He made the new birth possible and simply asks that we look and live. Now this explains why Jesus then finishes up everything by saying, look, I'm not here to condemn. I'm here to save. The issue is whether or not a person is going to look. If they've determined, so in the bronze serpent story, if you got bit by a snake and you were too stubborn to look up and live, what was going to happen? You were going to die. And Jesus is saying, look, I've come to save. But if anybody refuses to look and live, I'm not condemning them. They condemn themselves. They're the ones refusing. Let me ask you a question. What does it take for a person to look? I remember not long after I became a Christian, in the boldness of my new faith, I began to ask my non-Christian friends, are you born again? Or something like that. I remember two of them responded with, oh, yeah, yeah, we are. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, we don't eat meat on Friday. I said, well, well, you're mistaken here. I had another friend tell me, oh, my mom had me go to church and go through confirmation, so, of course, I'm born again. You see, the thing is, all of us have a list in our head of the things we would be willing to do 
to get into the kingdom. If the right person came along and said to be a good person and to be accepted by God, you had to drive an electric car, some of you would do it. If someone came along and said, you know what, the key to getting into the kingdom is going around and hugging a tree once a day, some of us would do it. But all of us have a list in our head of what we would be willing to do. And it's just, it's not just us. Everybody around us has a list for us, don't they? Here's how it works. Here's what you got to do. And unfortunately, we live in a time through social media and other things, we live in a time when everybody who has a list has a microphone, has a platform, and is telling everybody that they're certain that their list is right. But what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? What does a person have to do? Nothing. You just got to look. And that means something else to those of us who already have looked and already been healed. This means that we can rest. Because the message never was to walk across hot coals and be born again. The message is not be born again and then walk across hot coals. So I'm going to say to you, stop trying to walk across hot coals. The Old Testament is full of times when the people of God had days and weeks and months and even a whole year where God said to his people in modern language, chillax. If they had Netflix, I'm pretty sure he'd tell them to enjoy it. Over a whole year, some of us would get fidgety after an hour. But the point is, he's saying to his people, pull yourself out of the issues of life and relax. Take a moment where you're not worried about bedtimes and paperwork and date night and tuition costs and basketball practice and doctor's appointments. And just revel. As he said to the Hebrews, I've delivered you from Egypt. I've given you a land. Relax. And so we need to hear the same message The greatest need we could ever have, the need to be born again, if you're a Christian this morning, has already been accomplished. And the way it was accomplished was by you believing that it had been accomplished. It'll never see the light of day. I guarantee it. But I have a video in my possession of the night that Carol gave birth to Garrett. And the reason it'll never see the light of day is because any time the camera points to me, I don't think I've ever seen my eyes any wider. There's a shot of me sitting in the lounge eating Wendy's. It was like the first meal I had had in like 12 hours. My brother-in-law is sitting across from me, and my eyes are just huge. Like, I'm clearly, you're like, not with it. I mean, of course, this was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. I, I knew that very shortly I was going to become a dad. I didn't even know what that meant. Then Carol goes into labor. We go into the room. You know what I notice? All the screens and the beeping. And so I start asking questions. What does this do? What does this mean? What is this for? And they started answering my questions. And as soon as I began to understand what they were, I couldn't keep my eyes off the screens and off the machine. And so she would have a contraction. We'd watch Garrett's heartbeat go down. Then it would come back up, and she would have another contraction, and we'd watch it go down. And and at some point, it got really low, and I started to get anxious, and I pointed it out to the nurse, and she watched it, and she started getting anxious. And so now everybody's anxious watching the machine. 
which was all very stupid. Now, my, I, I guarantee you, my wife and I laugh about this now. But there was my wife dealing, doing all the work, dealing with all the pain, and I'm focused on the machine. Which was crazy because there was nothing I was going to be able to do but panic. Which I was doing a pretty good job of at the time. What I should have been doing was looking at the one doing all the work and dealing with all the pain. Most of us forget that until recently having a baby put the life of the mother in danger. And many times would cost her her life. In Jesus' day, when he uses this illustration of being born again, this would have been reality. To be born in Jesus' day meant there was going to be pain and suffering. There was no epidural. There were no pills to take, no semi-uncomfortable hospital beds. There would just be pain and suffering and many, many times death. He uses that illustration to help us understand in order for us to be born again, Jesus was lifted up in pain and suffering and death. That's how we were born, through his pain, through his suffering, and eventually his death. And all he asks us to do is look and live. Let's pray. Father. I thank you for an incredible text and an illustration so easily understood. I pray, Father, we'd get out our own way. I I, I pray, Father, we would put aside perhaps some stubbornness that we have, have taken up. If we're Christians, Father, this morning, I pray we would rest in this. That we need it and that we couldn't have done it for ourselves. But by your grace and mercy, you made it possible. And by your spirit, you gave us life because you called us to look and live. For those who may not have this morning, I pray, Father, you would help them to not think they can take care of it themselves. To not think that they don't need it. But I pray, Father, you would help them to look and live. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.